Another episode of the Self Development with Tactics podcast. Today we're once again reacting, quote unquote, reacting to a certain video by Andrew Huberman. Um, it is not quite a reaction because I have already seen the video and I found it is very interesting, also very useful for probably quite a lot of people. So I thought, let's check it out and let's um, let's use it as a source for further discussion, further. Um, you know, well, yeah, actually further discussion for this podcast. So I do want to underline that. Can I do this? Yes, I can. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I'm going to show you the title because I find that incredibly interesting to show you, to show you uh, the source, basically. So this is Andrew Huberman and it is from the Rich Roll podcast. I'm going to scroll down a little tiny bit. As you can see, the Rich Roll podcast was published on July 20th, 2020. So it is fairly, I don't know, not fairly old, but it's been two years, but I still find it incredibly interesting and incredibly useful to think about those things, to have these things in mind. So if you want to check out the full episode, please do so. Change your brain, neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Huberman on the Ritual podcast, as I said, once again, the 20th of July, 2020. So please check it out if you want to do so. So let's start. Towards these action steps that are rewarded, which then move us forward and so on. So what is the process of, of combating that, you know, monkey mind that is, you know, running whatever narrative that's keeping you stuck? Like, it's easy to say, like, just move, you got to take the action. Sure. But a lot of people still, despite understanding that, intellectualizing that, are unable to, you know, basically act as if. Yeah, I think we're dealing with... I think that this is kind of one of the biggest problems that books are having, quote unquote, are having. Um, a lot of people are reading books. I also like books. I, you know, relatively often have a quite, quite of a hard time going into it. And, um, you know, every single time when I'm starting it, it is quite a hard process for me. But anyway, just because I'm reading a book and I'm having this great information, having all of this great information, doesn't mean that I'm always going to act on that. And this is a big fucking problem. Um, and it is something that only we can deal with it's only something that we can we can change you know having this information does not mean that you know that it is going to make us better because we have to act on it we have to do something about it to make something happen you know because without action there is no change and there is no nothing basically but yeah um i have forgotten to introduce what this whole thing is about today um it is about motivation um focus and lack of motivation and so on and so forth. So um, still really interesting once again, I think the third time now. <laughs> the two general categories of people who have problems with motivation and focus. And I think we've failed to decide, um, excuse me, I think we failed to describe the fact that there are two groups and not one. We think, well, I need to calm myself enough to move forward. I think. And then other people say, well, no, you need to kind of ramp yourself up to move forward. Here's what, the way I conceptualize it based on the data that I'm aware of. Some people 
are just hypo aroused. They're just not motivated enough. And those people would benefit greatly from cultivating practices like super oxygenated breathing. Mm -hmm. So this is something along the lines of like tumo type breathing. So rapid, and we look at this in the lab, we're actually running a human study on this now. So 25 or 30 deep breaths through the nose and out through the mouth, then exhaling the breath and holding, learning to how to self-generate adrenaline. That's what you're doing yeah, when you're doing some that. Some version of the Wim Hof yeah, technique. Or that's what, what that is. Brian McKenzie talks about. Right, a, a, an ice bath is doing the exact same thing. Stimulating. Wim Hof breathing, I have. And most often when I'm feeling ill, most often when I do not really feel good, I tend to do it because um, I have this concept in my mind. And I think it is also the case that it makes me heal faster, that it makes me just, you know, reverse the illness really fast. Um, when I'm doing that, uh, if this is applicable to every illness that one is having, uh, not really. I think when it is something pulmonary, when it's something that has something to do with the lungs, maybe the heart and whatever, maybe not doing that. You know, since it is basically hyperventilating, um, speak to your doc doctor about that, uh, which I, by the way, find quite difficult. Um, I don't know if, and, and this might be a kind of, uh, you know, it might be a wrong idea on my side, but I don't really know if all doctors, especially in my area, know about that shit. And so when I come up to them be like, oh, you know, why shouldn't I be doing Wim Hof breathing? What are you thinking about that? And they're like, mm, I don't fucking know. I don't know what this is. So it might be an awkward situation. Of course, uh, one has to deal with that in order to um, maybe get what he or she wants. So, you know, this is maybe inevitable, but maybe also not. So maybe this doctor knows fairly quite a bit about whether I should be doing it or I shouldn't be doing it. Um, but still, I found it quite incredible and quite also interesting to have this sensation, this tingling in your feet and fingers. I found it pretty great. And I would suggest everyone to try it out if this person is in the right set of health probably better to, to test it when you're already healthy than when you're ill and or trying to recover from something. But um, great studies on that as well. I think Andrew is also talking about that later on or now. Adrenaline response, it, it actually improves the immune system. There's a mm -hmm. published paper on this, releases adrenaline, which buffers the immune system against infection. But getting good at taking yourself from low, low energy to higher energy and then learning how to compress your focus. And I'll talk about the focus thing in a minute. Some people are so agitated, the monkey mind, they got too many things going on and they're thinking, okay, they're trying to sit down and write. I suffer from this and I'm feeling like, wait, I've also got this person I need to connect with and I'm kind of dro being drawn off course by not being able to put the blinders on. For people that have that issue, I think learning how to calm the nervous system is very powerful. And the best way that I know how to do that is based on two studies, one published in Nature, one published in Cell Reports recently, showing that physiological size, there's actually a thing in the literature called physiological size, are one of the fastest ways to bring our overall levels of autonomic arousal down. And a physiological sigh is a two inhales followed by an extended exhale. So it's like, it's not just a deep breath, it's two inhales, followed by an exhale, mm. okay? And what that, what that does, and this has been shown several times now in humans and other species as well, is it dilates the, the little sacs of the lungs 
and that second inhale dilates them a little bit more. It pulls a little bit of carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream so that when we exhale, we offload the maximum amount of carbon dioxide and it perfectly adjusts the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the bloodstream and lungs. And sometimes it only takes one of these double inhale exhales. Sometimes somebody needs to do two or three, but that's the fastest way to bring the autonomic nervous system down. A lot of Which I found also interesting there is an app called, and I'm going to butch that for sure, um, Artisan, Vardison. Um, it is in cooperation with Andrew Huberman and a few other scientists. I don't want to say that it is a meditation app, but it goes into that direction. So if you know kind of, you know, Headspace or whatever there is, you probably know what I'm talking about and also the content that you are going to find there. Um, but there is a technique or a breathing method uh, he's using in one of those scripts or, or programs, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call them, um, which is breathing in pretty deeply and then uh, breathing out through very tight lips like this. And I thought, hmm, I know that from uh, people I think that are already hyperventilating to... Um, since they're having so much oxygen in the body, which is this kind of, you know, why they're hyperventilating and or, um, as far as I at least remember, um, I've learned that once. But um, so this slow uh, out breath, you know, breathing through those very tight lips, which, you know, gets your oxygen out or your um, carbon dioxide out um, relatively slowly, uh, calms those people down, I might be able to find something um, actually. Is it for... Maybe I can find it with this breathing exercises. Yes, um, breathing exercises for COPD patients, uh, which is a lung, a lung illness, a lung disease. Uh, yeah, pursed lip breathing. This technique helps you slow your breathing and stay calm. It can be especially helpful before you start an activity or any time you feel short of breath. Breathe in through your nose, almost like you're smelling something for about two seconds. Use your abdominal muscles to help fill your lungs with air. Pucker your lips as if you're about to blow out a candle and then breathe out slowly through your mouth. Breathe out twice as long as when you inhale, make a quiet hissing sound as you exhale. Repeat several times. Then diaphragmatic breathing, controlled coughing, and so on. It might not be the exact same thing, but it just reminded me of it. And I also thought about... Um, what breathing do I do when I'm really stressed and or just really pissed off? And I thought, well, um, most often I'm like, or something like this. Um, not always, of course, but sometimes I do that. And I thought, hmm, deliberately doing that actually makes sense. Deliberately doing that uh, is a good concept. You know, why aren't we doing so? And also this desire, so, which is also... Uh, scientifically proven to do something. I don't remember, but Andrew Huberman was also talking about that. Um, just really, in, oh, 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 I fucked up there. Complicated, you know, issues with it too, if I'm just eating to calm yeah. myself. So the diaphragm is the one skeletal muscle organ that was internally, right? We've got obviously skeletal muscles designed to move things. It's a skeletal muscle organ, unlike the spleen, the liver, the not being able to put the blinders on. For people that have that issue, I think learning how to calm the nervous system is very powerful. 
And the best way that I know how to do that is based on two studies, one published in Nature, one published in Cell Reports recently, showing that physiological size, there's actually a thing in the literature called physiological size, are one of the fastest ways to bring our overall levels of autonomic arousal down. And a physiological sigh is a two inhales followed by an extended exhale. So it's like, it's not just a deep breath, two inhales, followed by an exhale, mm. okay? And what that, what that does, and this has been shown several times now in humans and other species as well, is it dilates the, the little sacs of the lungs and that second inhale dilates them a little bit more and it pulls a little bit of carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream so that when we exhale, we offload the maximum amount of carbon dioxide and it perfectly adjusts the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the bloodstream and lungs. And sometimes it only takes one of these double inhale exhales. Sometimes somebody needs to do two or three. But that's the fastest way to bring the autonomic nervous system down. A lot of people need such a tool because I think we talk a lot about meditation and tools for calm. And you know, I can go to Esalen for a weekend and get a massage, I'm gonna feel very good. But then when I'm thrown back in real life, I need something that's gonna work in real time, what I call a real time tool. And most people don't know how to control their autonomic nervous system because it's complicated. I can't control my liver function. I can eat, that will calm me, but that has, uh, just, you know, let's start controlling our liver function and or our, I don't know, our gut so that we are losing weight or whatever shit. Um, and I found that, or still find it incredibly, incredibly calming and also, you know, putting things into perspective. Of course, he's a scientist and we try to figure out how to, how to deliberately do things and, you know, how to have those habits that are able or enabling us to just, you know, be better performing to do things better to to be greater and and healthy and happier but in the end we are still humans you know in the end we are only humans of course learning how to um do certain things it's fucking great but there is a kind of you know there's a wall at some point you know a wall that we cannot climb over um maybe through some uh further research or through some further information on uh, on, on the liver <laughs> through further studies and whatnot, we can indeed do that. Uh, I mean, pharmaceutically, we can, I would believe. I mean, we ha kind of have to, uh, I guess. Um, but still, I found that uh, very, very, very much putting things into perspective. As complicated, you know, issues with it too, if I'm just eating to calm yeah. myself. So the diaphragm, is the one skeletal muscle organ that was internally, right? We've got obviously skeletal muscles designed to move things. It's a skeletal muscle organ, unlike the spleen, the liver, the heart, et cetera. It was designed to be moved vol voluntarily. And these physiological sighs are actually occurring fairly regularly during sleep to adjust our levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen. And there's a recent study showing that in claustrophobia, this is the breathing pattern that people default to, mm. to try and offload wow. that carbon dioxide. So whereas there are a lot of really interesting um, breathing techniques, Wim Hof, Brian McKenzie does great work, uh, Patrick McEwen, you know, the, uh, Laird and Gabby, the tons of, of people doing really interesting things out there. My lab has been focused on what are the neural circuits that are designed to achieve particular states that happen to impinge on and capture diaphragm function. And so the reason I think breathing is so powerful is that everyone has a diaphragm 
and it's the immediate link to the body. A lot's been made of the vagus nerve, you know, uh -huh. oh, the vagus is the path between the body and mind, but the vagus is very slow. The vagus nerve calming is what you experience when you eat a really rich, a carbohydrate rich meal, or you're, you've had a long day and, you're, and you put your feet up and you're finally relaxing. It takes minutes to hours to kick in. Whereas the diaphragm is real-time control over your brain state. So the brain knows what the body is doing by how fast the diaphragm is moving. It knows yeah. its overall activation state. So when you breathe quickly, those 25 or 30 breaths, the brain says, oh, I must be alert. I'm gonna start secreting some noradrenaline. And when you breathe slowly, that level of noradrenaline drops down. So it sounds so simple, but I think it's only in the last two or three years that my lab and Mark Krasnow's lab at Stanford and other labs elsewhere in the world have started to identify the neurons in the brain that are linked to breathing and how those two things relate to one another. And mm. I think everybody should have a kit of tools yeah. that they can use to bring themselves down and ramp themselves up. I'll just say one other thing about focus. So when we're in a high alert state, something very powerful happens that I think partially explains your, um, your ability now to drop into this book writing. When there's a certain amount of adrenaline in our system, our pupils dilate. Just a bit of context. Um, Ritual, is this actually his name? I don't know. The person of the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, he was talking about the fact that he is writing a book at a time or well, actually was writing a book because it's uh, an older video. And he had a pretty hard time getting into it at first. And, you know, at some point he was really able to just immerse himself into writing this book. And at this point he was only focusing on that. The only focus that he has had was writing the book. And it's quite actually, um, this is paraphrased by the way. Um, the only thing that he was thinking about is writing the book, which yeah, it's just a context for... Remember, the eyes are not that. connected to the brain. Our eyes are actually two pieces of central nervous system. They are two pieces of brain outside the skull that were designed to control our overall arousal state. And so we can talk about this as it relates to sleep and sleep quality. But when I bring up the level of adrenaline in my body through breathing, or let's say I see a troubling text, or let's just say I, um, I just use a very Goggins type approach and just figure out the most painful... <laughs> David Goggins, um, which was also part of this discussion, part of this podcast, David Goggins, the Navy SEAL guy that is very, um, very driven, I would say. I think it yeah, describes him quite well. And there were some studies that Andrew Huberman did or his lab did on him and, you know, fear and whatnot. So also really interesting and also worth checking out inspiring for me reason to yeah. do it you know it's it, it sounds vague because obviously david i don't know what goes on in your head but a tremendous respect for your ability to do this but he just ratchets himself out of that ditch and puts himself in motion the pupils dilate and when that happens our visual system actually enters something that's a little bit more like portrait mode on our phone mm. there's a process called accommodation and your ability to focus on one thing visually actually becomes better and your ability to see everything else blurs away. And that's the ability to just see that screen of text or that if you work on you know pad and paper to just see that pad and paper. Uh -huh. And then as you start writing, what people don't realize is that mental focus follows visual focus. Now in blind people, it's slightly different. It follows auditory focus. But in, in most people, your visual focus as you bring that 
into really sharp relief, that image of your book, and you stare at it, you're gonna feel some agitation and your mind's gonna be jumping all over the place. But if you wait just a couple minutes, the rest of the world will disappear. I think this is sort of like the flow state people are looking for. But remember the gate of entry is one of, you have to wade through some, some sewage before you can swim in clear water. Right. That's the way I always think about it. But the visual focus is what brings the rest of the brain into cognitive focus. And people in the martial arts understand this. You've probably experienced this running when you're feeling exhausted and you can just concentrate on one milestone and get there. You can almost bring that into like, you, what you're doing is you're linking that to the dopamine circuitry. You're saying that thing is the milestone, not winning the race, not some other thing outside this, this immediate environment, that thing. And when you're able to start capturing these peripheral circuits, meaning the body, the diaphragm, the visual system, then you start getting past this whole idea of mindsets and it really becomes about the body setting the mind. And this is where I think when you say action leads the rest, mm -hmm. right? It's that's a, what you're saying is, a, is grounded in real neuro, neurobiological data. There's also a shift in your perception of time when you're in that state. You know, suddenly your relationship with time becomes completely different. So I'm, I'm and really I don't know whether that, it, and, yeah. and, and, and I'm not like, you know, it's easy to say it slows down or it speeds up. To me, it's neither. You're in this weird. So the point here is, as he already pointed out, visual focus becomes or is before mental focus. So when I'm able to visually focus on something, I can create mental focus. So I do want to skip this tiny bit here, panoramic vision versus vocal, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, vocal vision. Um, and go to the methods, which I find more it's useful it, probably. able to get through. It saves you energy and it, and it builds energy. The other thing is we talk a lot about sleep and sleep is extremely important, but there are other modes of, and brain states that can allow you to recover. One of the ones that I'm a huge proponent of and that my lab has been studying and other labs are studying is what many people call yoga nidra. Where you, I've done yoga nidra a lot. It's a wonderful practice, yeah. you know, just lying down and focusing enough of your attention so that you don't fall asleep, and enough of your attention on and moving it around so that you're not really concentrating on any one thing. I fall asleep every time. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I do too. But what we know, so I fundamentally disagree with respectfully though with the idea that we can't recover sleep that we've lost, because what are we really talking about there? For me, it's the ability to perform these duration path outcome analysis. So in my lab, we have people do a cognitive task and then we place them into these very deep states of relaxation through things that are kind of like yoga nidra. Mm -hmm. And people can find yoga nidra scripts out there. They're everywhere on YouTube, elsewhere. Or we have them do a hypnosis script. Hypnosis is very similar. Deep relaxation, wandering sort of attention, fairly narrow context, but it brings the brain into these unique states where you're neither asleep nor awake. And for people that have trouble falling asleep or trouble relaxing themselves, these kinds of practices are extremely useful because they're really teaching you how to turn off those modes of focus. So, you know, we, we live in a stressed society. Some people are stressed because they're overwhelmed, but other people are stressed because they just don't know how to turn off their brain and fall asleep. And so if you want to learn how to turn off your brain and fall asleep, these practices are immensely useful. How do you practice hypnosis by yourself though? So there's some scripts. I would recommend people go to one of the scripts on YouTube or um, there's some good ones. I've never met him. I don't have any relationship to him, but Michael Seeley, S-E-A-L-E-Y, uh -huh. uh, Australian guy. Um, 
has some really good hypnosis scripts. And uh, they're just audio programs? Yeah, you just listen to them. And these- uh, And he's not gonna make you walk off a cliff or anything. No, so stage okay. hypnosis is very different. I, uh -huh. So I have a very close collaboration with a guy named David Spiegel, who's in our psychiatry department uh -huh. at Stanford. We're now looking at how daily- There is also an app, I don't know if he's gonna mention that now, but Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I, Reverie, I think it is pronounced, uh, spelled. Um, it is basically only, by the way, for iOS, not for Android. Poor me. But it is a self-hypnosis app by David Spiegel. I think who is also a lecturer at Stanford, or was at least, something like this. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, if you want to check it out, check it out. I think it is free. At least a few of the scripts or programs are free. Some might be paid, but um, one can try that out at least. Breathing um, exercises can impact people's sleep and levels of stress. He's done a lot of work on addiction and trauma and pain management through hypnosis. And most all of hypnosis that's clinical involves bringing one's state into one of deeper relaxation, not full sleep, and then thinking about some behavioral change that one wants to make. These are ancient practices really. And I think that they were developed by people that understood that rewiring of the brain requires focus and deep rest. What's interesting about hypnosis is it brings those two things together at the same moment. So normally you'll work really hard on something, work really hard, then you'll sleep and that's when the plasticity occurs. But hypnosis likely accelerates that whole process by having people enter a state of deep relaxation and focus at the same time mm. and allows those circuits to reshape themselves. And there's some published data uh, from David's lab to support that. That's fascinating. So I think these practices are really useful. And I think that if you want to get better at performing, everyone now knows, thanks to Matt Walker's book and others, like sleep more, sleep better. But what if you have trouble sleeping? Well, or falling asleep? Well, we want to define what that is. Some people have a hard time turning off their thoughts. It's really hard. Remember, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. What you can do is to learn to control that perceptual window and distribute it so that your sense of time starts to kind of drift off and you end up in sleep more easily. And it's a practice that most people find if they do it for 10 minutes a day or so, they start sleeping much better within within a week or, or more, you know, and sometimes more, They sometimes people need some other help, like not drinking caffeine yeah. late in the day, et cetera. But that brain state of no duration path and outcome and else, uh, might be the case that he's gonna talk about that now or maybe before something that I've cut off, but having this vocal vision instead of this peripheral vision. So when I'm focusing on something, this is vocal vision. Um, my perception of time is, is a certain way compared to my panoramic vision or my, like when I'm not focusing quite. So um, when I'm focused, time passes by pretty quickly. Apparently, and apparently when I'm having this panoramic vision, um, I'm thinking about it as, and he has also been talking about that for a bit, um, when I look at my screen, but I'm actually focusing on something right there or something on the other side or something, um, I can see still, you know, those here, I can still see that. Do you see this? No, you don't see my hand. Uh, I still see this, for example. So when I'm focusing on that, apparently my perception of time is a bit slower than normal time is. So yeah, um, I think this is quite enough for today. Um, might definitely be, a, uh, be, be be good to go through the whole thing, but I still um, really wanted to underline something or something that I found really interesting. Um, so as I said, 
Change Your Brain neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman from the Ritual Podcast or on the Ritual Podcast from July 20th, 2022. Check it out if you want to check it out. It is available now. I don't know what this is going to look like in the future. Um, so this is my source. I hope that's fine <laughs> for the team of the Ritual Podcast and also for Andrew Huberman. But yeah, um, I hope that you're having a great day and that you're going to have a great day from now on. Um, wish you the best. Hopefully see you soon. So 